Church, I want to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible provided in front of you that you can use and turn to uh, uh, the middle of the Bible. You'll find the Psalms and just go to the right a little bit and you will find the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. When you're there, say amen. Man, you're quick. You guys are quick on the draw. Let's stand together as we read God's Word from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 14, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So please follow along as we read and then as we, as we study His Word today. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not from your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take part, do, I'm sorry, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows the many times that you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned in my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of many things, the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Father, we ask that you help us as we study this text, that you would speak through me today that I would preach not merely my own ideas but your word that you would open our hearts to shape us according to Jesus Christ it's in his name we pray and all God's people said amen John Quincy Adams resume boasted some of the most prestigious titles of his day. President, Senator, Congressman, 
He was actively engaged in pivotal moments in his history, including the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and events leading up to the Civil War. Despite John Quincy Adams' distinguished career, as he hit age 70, he penned a surprising reflection. My whole life, he said, has been a succession of disappointments. I can scarcely, scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything that I ever undertook. I want to preach to you this morning on this text under the topic, Dealing with Disappointment. And I wonder if any of you could resonate with John Quincy Adams. I wonder if any of you have ever felt disappointed. Maybe the world would look in upon your life and think, you've got it together, you've got some good things going for you. Others can kind of see the blessings of God in your life, but as you think back on your life and maybe as you consider your own life, you see nothing but a series of disappointments. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14 through verse 29. The author of Ecclesiastes deals with the topic of disappointment. Verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything, he says. I've seen it all. And remember, let's go back to the context from last week's sermon in verse 13. He asks this question, who can make straight what the Lord has made crooked? Meaning we live in this crooked world. And now he's turning the corner to talk about the crooked world that we live in and how disappointing things are. I've seen it all, he says. So let's start off with what we know. What we know is that Jesus can straighten what God has made crooked. Jesus will straighten things out. What we also know, however, is that the world still remains crooked. What we sometimes forget is that the world remains crooked. What I mean by that is sometimes the religious person comes to religion and comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ with this hope of victory, stepping into the grace and the mercy of Christ, and now expects life to be better. And they are slapped in the face by disappointment. And what happens, if we're not careful, is that we then get angry with God. And so we've got to learn to deal with our disappointments. Are you with me so far? The original readers of this text would have been Jews, of course, written in Israel. This was often read, Ecclesiastes was traditionally read before the Feast of tabernacle, which was a time that they would reflect on the wilderness wanderings, this big question mark of disappointments. God's taken us out of Egypt, and now we're disappointed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Ecclesiastes set the stage for the celebration that would remind them of those days. Now, being 
Israelites, they would have been Torah-following Jews, which means that they would have been devout. They would have been religious folks. They would have been the kinds of people that seek to obey the law, the kinds of people that seek to observe the rules. And here's the danger that we can fall into is this. Since we are the righteous ones, we will get out of this wilderness. Since we are the righteous ones, this thing should come to an end. There's no reason that we should be wandering with all of these disappointments in life if God is our God. You see, tragedy then strikes. The, the, the good die young. The wicked prevail. We're out of Egypt and now we're in the wilderness. I think of the Psalms. The psalmist often cries out where the, while the enemies of God sit on the throne. And if we're not careful, our next step is anger. Now, anger is also tied into this text. If you look back at verse 9 in chapter 7, you'll be reminded that unchecked anger is lodged into the human heart. So the author of Ecclesiastes already is thinking of anger. He's dealing with the problems of life, the challenges of life, and one of the most common places that we arrive as a humanity because of the issues of the world is anger lodged in our heart. Anger that has taken root in our soul. R.C. Sproul explained anger in this way. He said anger comes from false, exp or, uh, from false expectations. Start there. False expectations, which lead to disappointments, or even true expectations, just comes from expectations, which lead to disappointments, and disappointments repeated leads to frustration, and frustration repeated leads to anger. And so then if we want to deal with our anger, we have to think about our frustrations. What are we frustrated with? What are those repeated frustrations in our lives? And if we're thinking about frustrations, then we have to ask ourselves, where am I disappointed? Where was I let down? And then if we're thinking about where we were disappointed, we have to ask ourselves, what were my original expectations? What expectations were failed? And so if we want to deal with our anger, we have to deal with what? Our expectations. Now, anger with God is always going to be the result of false expectations. And so if we're angry with God, we've got to root it all the way back, dig it down to the roots, and ask ourselves, what were those false expectations? False expectations, as it relates to God, what God is going to do for you, what, how this world should go for you, how your people should go, how your friendships should go, how your church should go, like all of these expectations need to be checked against the truthfulness of what God has revealed in the Scriptures against his promises that he's given to us. False expectations have the possibility of ruining you. 
And so think of like a, a hockey player checking another hockey player into the glass, all right? Think of your false expectations as these little figure skaters out there doing triple lutzes and stuff like that. And a hockey player, we're coming along this morning as a hockey player checking your false expectations into the glass, all right? Are you with me? All right. Let me check some expectations for you. Number one, false expectations lead to disappointment in adversity. Meaning, if we have an expectation that we will have no adversity in life because God is on our side, we will be disappointed, which will lead to our frustration, which will lead to anger. So let's check that disappointment or that expectation. Look at verse 14. He says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Meaning, God has organized all things in such a way that we can't guess what's coming. In verses 1 through 13, last week we looked at this string of Proverbs. And this, these Proverbs continue with verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Proverbs are short little phrases which teach us about life and truth and wisdom. And as I'm studying the Proverbs here that are linked together in chapter 7, and particularly in these 14 through verse 29 verses, what I see as the main theme are Proverbs on how we deal with disappointing realities. But first, in verse 14, he says, don't be a stoic when it comes to joy. In verse 14, if you look at it again, he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Meaning, there are some people that are so pious, they can't celebrate a pay raise. Like some people uh, almost have this, this false belief that as a Christian, life is to always be sad and hard, and difficult. And, and, and so they live lives that are always hard and miserable. And they can't see the good news slapping them in the face. Prosperity is dropped into their lap by God's kindness and grace and mercy, and they can't ever see it, and they can't ever celebrate it. And so what, the, what he's saying here is when that day of prosperity comes, be joyful. Be joyful. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the joyless Christian is a contradiction. Like Eeyore. You get something good, and Eeyore says, and I quote, I'm going to lose it anyway. Just always down, always negative. You get what you prayed for, and well... It's still kind of hard. Life sucks. I don't like it. I'm going to lose it anyway. Yeah, today's good. I got heat and food today, but tomorrow I might not. Never able to see the prosperity that God is giving you. Never able to enjoy the prosperity that God has given you. Oh, let us not, in reaction to the prosperity gospel, become miserable Christians who can't enjoy the good blessings that God has given us. Amen? 
That's what he's saying here. Now, the next line, though, is more challenging. He says, in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Meaning, as God gives us days of prosperity, God also has planned for us days of adversity. As the song says, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. I know who holds, this, the, the, the author says, I know who holds the day, of, uh, the, the day of adversity. And the one who holds the day of adversity is the same God who holds my hand. You see, for some, the whole gospel message has been exchanged for a message of prosperity. And they're not prepared for the day of adversity. For some, the birth of a Savior has been exchanged for the birth of a dream that God gave you. For some, the suffering of a Savior is a mere illustration about how God is going to put you through times of suffering, but you're going to get through it and your vision for your life is still going to be accomplished and you're still going to achieve your dreams and your success. For some, the, the resurrection of a Savior, is merely just a story about how God gives you a, a rebirth of your vision after times of adversity. You see what I'm saying? Like we've exchanged a Savior for a gospel that is about our own success. A gospel that, where, where our Savior is actually our own dream and vision for our life that we're for some reason to chase after. And run after. And the enemy of our gospel is not sin and death and the devil, but rather it's anybody who doesn't see and agree with our dream. My problem with this, first, is that we've gutted the gospel of a Savior. And secondly, church, we are not preparing one another for the days of adversity which God has planned. Choosing a rendition of the gospel which reduces the gospel message to a mere motivational speech and therefore loses its motivation when suffering strikes. I wonder if anybody can say that God is good during the good times and God is good during the bad. God has the good days in His hands. And God has in His kindness and wisdom and providence and sovereignty, knowing that all things work together for my good and for His glory, God has designed days of adversity. And He is a good God on both days. I wonder if anybody can bear witness to the fact that it was in the crucible of adversity that I discovered how to have hope. I wonder if someone remembers that the day of greatest adversity in human history is the day of our salvation. Listen, it was God who made a day when Judas would betray Jesus. It was God 
who made a day when nails would be pounded into the hands and into the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was God who made a day when Jesus would breathe His last. God made that day of adversity. But even, listen to this, in the greatest adversity, the greatest adversity ever known to human history, God is at work in that day. God is at work doing something marvelous. Now, here's my point. If God can work in that day, and God in that day did a work for your soul, dealing with the judgment for your sin, if He did all that, do you think He'll forget you now? Do you think that your little days of adversity that you face at home, at work, at school, wherever, maybe they're big, maybe they're huge, but do you think He's done all that to forget you now? Oh, if He cares about the lilies, how much more does He care about His child? How much more does He care about His blood-bought citizen who He is bringing home to glory? If our expectation then, this is where we're checking our false expectation, if our expectation is only prosperity, we are then blindsided by adversity. And then that leads to disappointment, which leads to frustration, and frustration repeated leads to anger, and in this case, anger with God. Number two in the next section here, verses 15 through 18, what we see are false expectations leading to disappointment in death. False expectations lead to disappointment in death. In verse, verse 15, we see an enigma here. The good die young while the wicked live long. The righteous dies. Not only do they die, but as he says the righteous die in his righteousness. Meaning a good man dies doing something good. And on the other hand, he says the wicked is prolonged in his evil doing. Meaning the wicked, by doing evil, in some fashion prolongs their life on earth. Now, you see Proverbs, we talked about this last week, Proverbs generally teach us that if you live by wisdom, you'll generally live long, and if you live by foolishness, your life generally will be cut short. But we have to understand that Proverbs are general principles, not promises. These anomalies exist. In 1981, Chet Bitterman was a Wycliffe missionary who went to Columbia, and he was arrested by M-19 which was controlling parts of Colombia at the time. His wife, Brenda, his daughters, Anna and Esther, stayed back in Bogota as they prayed for him to be released, for, their, for them to get their husband and their father back. M-19 demanded that Wycliffe get out of Colombia completely in order to release Chet Bitterman. Before dawn, he was killed with a single bullet to his chest. 
Police found his body in a bus wrapped in an M19 banner. How do we respond when the righteous die in their righteousness? When we are wanting to live our life for God and do something good for Jesus, we're going to sacrifice our families and our home culture and we go to a different place like Columbia in this case and, and he ends up dying. And, and not, not only that, even worse, a wife loses her husband and two little girls grow up without a father. How do we deal with the disappointment of death when the good man dies young in doing good and the wicked in their wickedness seem to prosper? His application in verse 16 through 18 is kind of interesting. He says in verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, he's going from a situation of uh, a, a question of how do we deal with this disappointment, and now he's giving us some principles to live by. And at face value, these principles to live by seem kind of strange, don't they? It sounds like what he's saying is, is don't be too holy because you might get yourself killed. And sin a little bit, but just sin in moderation, because a lot of sin might also get you killed when you're too young. But that's not what he's saying. can't be what he's saying. Because his whole point in verse 18 is that we fear God. And the fear of God keeps us from both of whatever these things are. What we understand then is that these two realities that he's kind of presenting are extremes and extremes of what well the word overly is helpful here that's the key word to understand this don't be overly righteous he says here almost all scholars agree that what he's saying is not he's not talking about true righteousness but a, a, a kind of over righteousness a what we might call self-righteousness where we're going over and above the righteousness of God in order to in some fashion show God how good we are in order to get the blessings of God let me give you an example Origen supposedly a, a theologian from history castrated himself in order to follow Matthew you know to not lust after a woman I think that's what he's talking about that kind of stuff and he's saying you're actually going to harm yourself in your strictness. Meaning there are some people who are so zealous for the rules that they've created for themselves. They are building up for themselves not true righteousness, but a mere self-righteousness. And what, he, what I believe he's saying is, is that this is not securing any additional blessing for you. Don't think that you can just be more strict and God will in some way give you more years to live. But rather, in your strictness, you can actually be harming yourself. That's one extreme. Then the other extreme is in verse 17, which is to don't give yourself over to too much sin. What's he mean by that? Well, he already knows that you sin. So he's saying don't give yourself to lawlessness. Don't give yourself over to sin. And that's where foolishness is at, and you certainly will shorten your life. 
But rather, verse 18, he says, the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, meaning they will be relieved of both of these kinds of extremes. The goal here is that we fear God. And the fear of God keeps us from manipulating God. If I could summarize it this way, the manipulator of God, or the religious, we'll just call them the religious, they would be the kind of person that thinks to themselves, if I can just do good and follow these rules and be really, really strict, then God will bless me. And I know that I'll only get good things in life. Whereas the opposite extreme would be the irreligious individual who says, you're crazy. Because the good still die young. So you might as well just give yourself over to your flesh, to the desires and the wants of your flesh. Now, neither of these views are Christian, the author is saying. But rather, the one who views God is the one who, to summarize everything that we've studied so far, is one who understands that God is the author of the crookedness of the world. He is the creator of the day of prosperity, and he's the creator of the day of adversity. Christ has overcome the greatest adversity and one day will completely remake all things and there will be no more adversity of sin or of death that we have so much joy to look forward to. Yet, we still live in a broken world. And and so the Christian is one who then says, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. The death of a saint is precious in the eyes of God. In the year following Chet Bitterman's death, applications for overseas missions through Wycliffe doubled in one year. Think about that. John Piper comments on this story, and he says it's the it's not the kind of missionary mobilization that any of us would choose, but it is God's way. And then he quotes John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Meaning what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. As we check these kinds of expectations, we understand that God's ways are not our ways. And that God could remove any one of us at any time, for any cause, for His purposes, and something beautiful could come out of it. For His glory. Ultimately for our good and for the good of His people. How is it possible that the death of a missionary would inspire thousands of people to apply to go to the mission field? It's because the Christian says, this world is not my kingdom. I don't live to look like a king or queen in this world. My kingdom is a kingdom that is to come. And that's the kingdom that I proclaim. That's where my citizenship is. That's the kingdom I am running toward and seeking after. False expectations. False expectations lead to disappointments. And so we check it. Greater love has no man than this, than a man who lays down 
his life for his friend. Oh, if Christ laid down his life for you, would you give your life for Christ no matter what? So false expectations lead to disappointment in adversity and they lead to disappointment in death. And third, in verses 19 through 29, false expectations lead to disappointment in ourselves and others. Let me say that again. False expectations lead you to being disappointed in yourself and in other people. The climax comes in verse 20, and that verse 21 through 29 is proving the statement that the preacher makes in verse 20. So look at verse 20 with me. He says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. What else does that sound like in the New Testament? It sounds like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? Romans chapter 3, verse 20. There is none righteous. No, not one. Look, don't you understand? This is just a little side note that the New Testament didn't come up with new stuff that God had not been revealing through His people for, for a thousand years. Here in Ecclesiastes, we see Pauline theology. There is surely not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. God's Word doesn't change. Now, what he's saying is this. Suffering exists, and it's inevitable. Not only because it's outside of us, you know, death coming to us, or adversity coming to us, but suffering also exists. Check this out, and let's humble ourselves. It also exists because we're sinners. Lady Jane Grey, I've told you her story before. Lady Jane Grey, 17 years old, just turned 17, she was deposed by Bloody Mary. She was a gospel, God-fearing Christian, locked up in a tower. And just before this young girl saw her executioner, the night before she died, she, she wrote this down. She said, if justice is done with my body, my soul will find mercy with God. Death will give pain to my body for its sin but the soul will be justified before God. Now, she's not saying she did anything wrong. She was locked up as an innocent individual. She's being executed as an innocent individual. Yet she says, death will give pain to my body for its sin. What's she saying? This young 17-year-old theologian understands that her body is born under the curse of sin. And when we die, no matter why we die, we die because we are under the curse of sin. Nobody is going to live forever because we are under the curse of sin. And so the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, as he thinks about this life, he says there's nobody righteous. Nobody who does good and never sins. He's not surprised by death. The Ecclesiastes author reminds us not to get ahead of ourselves. Meaning, yes, Christ is coming to fix things. One day we will live forever with God and all tears will be wiped away. Amen? There will be no more pain and suffering. Amen? 
But that day is not today. Don't get ahead of ourselves. Don't believe that the second coming has already come. We're still in these bodies of sin. To prove it in verse 21, let's go through this really quickly here. Verse 21, he gives us his proof from his experience with people. He says, look, don't take to heart the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. He's trying to prove here that nobody does good. And where where does he go? He goes to words. He says, just think about how people talk to you. That's proof that nobody does good. And before you get too cocky, look at verse 29. He says, you know, your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. It's not just in others, but it's also in you. I'm checking our expectations in, our, in others, and I'm checking our expectations in ourselves. Because, saints, we are too often let down by others because we expect more than what God has promised out of others. And we are disappointed by ourselves because we too forget that we are sinners. Verse 23 through 28 then, the preacher testifies of his search for wisdom. All this, he says, I've tested by wisdom. All this refers to everything we've discussed so far. I've tested it all by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but he says it was far from me, meaning I, I, I couldn't find wisdom. Verse 24, That which has been far off is deep, very deep. Who can find it out? He's honing in here on the limits of wisdom. And what he's saying is that in our fallen state, wisdom itself is not enough. Not because wisdom is the problem, but because we are the problem. Not because wisdom is limited, but we are limited in our understanding of wisdom, of how to achieve wisdom and how to be wise. Verse 25, I turn my heart then to know and to seek out wisdom and the schemes of things and to know wickedness and folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is a snare and nets and whose feet are fetters. Who please, uh, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He's saying, I'm looking around for wisdom and what I see, I see something that's even worse than death and that is sin. Sin, worse than death. He says, I see a, a, a man who's snapped, uh, snared and trapped by a woman. He's not anti-woman here. He's not presenting woman as sort of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the temptation for men. But rather remember that the author of Proverbs uses woman as a, an analogy of folly. Lady folly, he calls her. And so here he's personifying foolishness as a woman. And he's saying the person who runs after foolishness who runs after sin, is entrapped by sin. Meaning, sin's chains bind tight. Now, I wonder if anybody understands that right now. I wonder if there's somebody in this room that would say, I am in sin, and I feel the shackles on my wrist. I want to be free. I want to walk away, but I can't. Well, I've got good news for you. In Christ's death, We died to the power of sin. Meaning our freedom is not merely in just losing our life, but our freedom is in losing our flesh. It's in the fact that Christ died to the power of sin. And I wonder if there are any saints in this room that could testify to those and encourage those 
who are trapped in their sin, who might be able to say, yes, Christ does free us from the power of sin. I once was lost in darkest night. And I found Christ, amazing grace, that saved a wretch like me. There is liberty right now in Jesus Christ. That's where we find freedom, to walk away from sin's chains. The first step we need to know is this, and it's where the author's going, it's where he's taking us, is to know that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. We are sinners. Verse 27 and 29 continues this theme. He says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now what's he saying there? What he's saying is, is I've looked around for the, for the person with wisdom, and out of a thousand men I found one, and I couldn't find a, a wise woman. That's essentially what he's saying. Some people accuse him of misogyny, again being anti-woman. That's not the case. He's using poetic structure to basically say there are no wise men and there are no wise women. He's saying to a patriarchal culture, out of a thousand men, maybe you got one. That's what he's saying. He's not saying men are, wisdom, uh, men are wise and women are not. He, what he's saying is, is what he then restates in verse 29, that there is nobody that is upright, not women or men, restating what he said in verse 20, look at verse 29. He says, this, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, meaning first truth, we were created upright. We were created to walk in holiness. We were originally made righteous. But number two, they have sought out many schemes. Number two, humans have sinned. And so two truths we'll close with. Number one, original uprightness. Number two, sin. If none were righteous, then suffering exists. Meaning, if we were all righteous, there would be no early death. If we were all righteous, there would be no suffering. But his final expectation as we think about disappointments is to look at the reality of sin. And since we still have sin in the world and even sin in our own hearts, there's going to be suffering. And so where are our expectations to be found, saints? Here's the problem. Many of you have too many expectations in this world. But there's a flip side to that you have too few expectations in the next. Many of you have too many expectations in mankind. But there's a flip to that. You have too few expectations in the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the Gospel isn't overtly heralded in these verses, these verses artfully guide us to the realization that we need a Savior. And as we draw to a close here, let me back up to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
as I'm reminded here, of when God approached Abraham and told Abraham the message of his impending destruction for the city Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had an earnest plea with God and he asked, if there are 50 righteous people, would you spare the city? God in His grace agreed. But church, the righteous were not 50. And so the pleading continued. If there are 45, if there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 20, the search for the wise continued. The search for the upright continued. And there were not even 10. Now, despite Sodom's fate, the lesson lingers. God, in His mercy, is willing to count the righteousness of one for many. As we close, I want to remind you of the one who came that was righteous. The one who came that was upright. The one who came that was sinless. The one who came that was pure. Jesus Christ, listen, who knew no sin, yet born under the curse of sin and into a body that would not last forever. This one, Jesus Christ, every moment of His existence radiated with perfect righteousness. In Him, God was willing to credit His righteousness, the righteousness of one for many. And Adam, all die, but rejoice at the second line. In Christ, all are made alive. You see, this one went under the curse of death, took the judgment that we deserved, and three days later, breaking forth from the grave with a body imperishable, a body that would live forever. The firstborn of the dead. And God looks at that one and He says, I will not destroy those who are in Him. They will live forever. Even those who for the sake of righteousness perish will be raised from the dead. And when they are raised, their gaze will be transfixed on the face of Jesus Christ. And so, saints, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, no tribulation, no famine, no distress, no war, no pain, no loss, no day of adversity. Nothing that you can face today, nothing that you can face tomorrow, nothing that you can face in five years from now, nothing that you can face in 20 years from now, nothing that you can face in 50 years from now can ever separate you from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. And when we are, when we are with God forever, in this glorious remade eternity, a, a 2,000 years from now, there will still be nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so, ex get your expectations right. That's, that's the point of my sermon. Are you with me? Expect what God has shown us in His Word. Don't, don't put your expectations in what moth can destroy. 
Don't put your expectations in what rust can tear apart. Don't put your expectations in yourself or in people that can and will fail you. Don't put your expectations in your ability to live. For God can take your life whenever God wants. Oh, but you have so much to expect in Jesus Christ. You have more in Christ than anything this world can ever give you. And you can fully expect it all. He will deliver on His promises. Amen? So cast your expectations. I cast my expectations into the arms of Christ. In Christ, I anticipate the proclamation of forgiveness. In Christ, I experience the shattering of the power of sin in my own life right now. And in Christ, I look forward to the resurrection from the dead. And so let me leave you with this question. Saints, when has Christ ever let you down? When has Christ ever failed you? He won't. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus that we can throw our expectations into Him, that we can lean into Him, trust Him. God, I pray, Lord, that You would help us as we walk through the days of prosperity that we would enjoy. See all things as a gift from You, and as we walk through the days of adversity, that we would trust You. Know that You've made that day for Your purposes. Doing something. You are at work. God, I pray for the person here today who is walking through disappointments, walking through adversity. Father, I pray that they would know that you are at work, that you haven't forgotten them, that you're still with them, that your promises still remain. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.